Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Hello. My name's Brooke Boney. I'm a Gamilaroi woman and I'm the breakfast news presenter on Triple J. Thank you all so much for making time to come here this afternoon to Hope on the Horizon for Indigenous Youth Mental Health. We're going to hear from some incredible speakers this afternoon and then we're going to have time for a Q&A as well. But before we get started, I would like to welcome to the stage Yvonne Weldon from the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council to welcome us to Gadigal Country. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, sisters and brothers. As was said, my name is Yvonne Weldon. I'm a Wiradjuri woman from Cowra here in New South Wales. I'm from the waters of the Clare, also known as the Lachlan, and of the Murrumbidgee Rivers. I'm the elected chairperson of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, who are the cultural authority under the Aboriginal Land Rights Act for the land we're meeting on. I would like to pay my respects to all elders, past and present, and to all First Nations and non-First Nations people here this evening. We're meeting here on the lands of the Eora Nation. The boundaries of the traditional owners are not defined by the hand or by the pen, but through the natural landscapes of the earth. The Eora Nation's country covers the Hawke's River in the north, the Nepean in the west, and the Georges River in the south. My people have practiced our traditions for thousands of years and endless generations. One tradition that is shared in various forms across Australia is a welcome to country. It is more than just words, it is a spiritual process. By honouring the ancestors' footsteps, we are all walking in, continuing the practice of many generations before us to the many generations to come. My people have been a part of this land for more than 60,000 years, and we are the oldest living culture of the world. On behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, the elders and the members, I welcome everyone to the land of the Gadigal, Acknowledge the Gadigal people whose spirits and ancestors will always remain with this land, our Mother Earth. The First Nations of this land are the most resilient, unique and sustainable people on the planet. For my people to have survived as long as we have, it's been through a continual practice of respect, collaboration, understanding and a willingness to come together. There are many Aboriginal warriors that have crossed this land before all of us, creating pathways before there were any, and to give respect and honour could you all please pause for a moment to remember the many sacrifices we have made along the way, the ones we will continue to make and the ones we shouldn't have to. As you connect, learn and share today, tomorrow and beyond, know that everyone's social and emotional wellbeing is more important than the material things in this world. Remember asking the questions of how are you and can I help? Is, more important, is it a more important step for you and the person you are asking? So if you don't ask, you may never understand the meaning of what it is to receive the answer. No matter what walks of life you come from, all of us need to support each other, bringing out hidden heartaches to share and to bring us all strength together. The road travel alone is the longest, hardest road there is. I will join you if you will join me. All of us together can bring about a positive change to each other, this state and this country now and into the future. To make that future possible, let us all draw upon my people's spirits as we continue on our journey. May my people's spirits walk with you and guide you as we strive forward for us all. Again, on behalf of the Metropolitan Local Aboriginal Land Council, welcome to Gadigal Land. Always was, always will be, 
Aboriginal land. Thank you and have a wonderful evening. As a Gamilaroi woman, I'd also like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders, both past and present. It's an incredible thing that we can gather in a place like this that's been here for a very long time, but then think about the thousands upon thousands of years before that and the things that Aboriginal people would have been doing on this land and that we're lucky enough to still be here and be able to share um, this space tonight. And it is because of our resilience that we've survived for so long and we all carry that with us. And that's what we're talking about tonight, is different approaches to tackling youth mental health challenges in the 21st century. And our first speaker is Professor Juanita Sherwood, who's the Associate Dean of Indigenous Strategy and Services in the Faculty of Health. And uh, Juanita was actually one of, my, uh, one of my teachers while I was at university, so I'm really excited to hear her speak tonight, and you're all very lucky. She's a highly respected champion of cultural change and social justice for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. She's a proud Wiradjuri woman. Juanita has led Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander engagement at the University of Sydney and was the Acting Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Indigenous Strategy and Services from August 2017 until mid-October this year. She's been a driving force behind building cultural competence across Australia and was the founding director of the National Centre for Cultural Competence, which is housed on the university's main campus here in Camperdown. Juanita maintains close connections to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, consulting regularly with elders to guide her decision-making and ensure her change agenda meets critical community needs. Please put your hands together and welcome her to the stage. Well, good evening, everybody. It's thrilling to be here. And um, I'd also like to pay my respects to the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to elders past and present and to my sisters and brothers and to my non-Indigenous brothers and sisters here tonight. I guess um, it's really important to have hope for social and emotional wellbeing changes. Um, I guess I've learned a lot in working in Aboriginal health for 30-something years and working in university systems. And so I really do appreciate the importance of great care for our people in this space. And the reason I do really care about this is that I have had a son who's had a mental illness. I've had another son who lived with me in Alice Springs who killed himself. And I myself have had um, depression and anxiety. So I think this is something that we all live with. And we often have to not explore it and express it, but I think it's really important that we do explore and, and express that we have all been dealing with issues so that we can actually share with people around how we can take the next steps for looking after ourselves. So looking after ourselves is really a key issue for every one of us. And I think our crazy worlds often limit the time that we do have to care for ourselves. And I guess um, it's really easily um, for us 
particularly when we're studying or we're working in the academy or working in any place, to be driven by our work agenda and not our health agenda, and particularly our social-emotional wellbeing agenda. I've been really fortunate um, in, in my role at the National Centre for Cultural Competence to be pushing the agenda of cultural competency across this university for staff and students and beyond the university across the country with a, a number of other peak bodies in health, et cetera, and the Human Rights Commission and government agencies to talk about the importance of cultural competency. The reason cultural competency is really important is that it actually is an opportunity for people to talk about their biases, their lack of knowledge around Indigenous issues, and often their ill-informed perspectives that often lead to racism in classroom situations that I have many students come and share their stories with me around how uncomfortable sometimes university can be, or in schools where the concept of talking about Aboriginal issues does raise people's um, concerns around ideologies. And students are beaten up in that space. Our students are beaten up in that space. And that's a space that should be a safe space. We should be providing an educational space that is promising and promoting an agenda that appreciates the diversity of everybody who comes to the university. But as we are the first peoples of this country, it's particularly important that universities recognise the importance of the First Peoples and their, their knowledge systems and their great heritage. I'm saying this because today I had a great opportunity this morning to walk a national park that I've never been to. It's in La Perouse. It's 10, 15 kilometres away and um, walk with an amazing Aboriginal elder, um, Mr Tim Ella, one of the Yellow Brothers, who walked us through this amazing national park and he ceremonially woke, welcomed us to country so that country could smell us and know that we came as a friend and know that we came as people who wanted to look after country and respect the country we were walking through. This is what we ask you to do with our minds and our hearts um, at university, and particularly around the social emotional wellbeing. We want you to respect us, our bodies and our minds in that same way and nurture us and as you do your own. This is a really important space that we can actually make a big difference and I think a cultural competence agenda within the Sydney University, which is the only university that's running this at the moment, so it's really important that we are recognising that people's well-being and sense of well-being is related to how we deal with diversity and inclusion. So because this is a diversity and inclusion evening, I really wanted to highlight that. So thank you very much. You're going to have a wonderful evening and learn a lot. Thank you very much, Juanita, Professor Sherwood, I should say. <laughs> Our next speaker is Joel Thompson, who works on the Mindset Project and is a professional rugby league player. I just 
Before we invite him up to the stage and before I introduce him formally, I just wanted to share a statistic with you that we've got here. Um, and this is from the Australian Bureau of Statistics data, and it shows that Indigenous young people are more than twice as likely to commit suicide as non-Indigenous young people. So tonight for us as Aboriginal people, um, we'll be talking about you know, the challenges that we face as Indigenous young people and how we can better support each other, how we can be better supported to combat and hopefully overcome some of those challenges. Joel Thompson is a proud Aboriginal man from the Niampa Nation and a professional rugby league player who currently plays for the Manly Seagulls, new coach today as well, yesterday, <laughs> where he received the Players, Player and Clubman Awards this year. Joel developed the Mindset Project in 2017 after discovering his passion in helping others, beginning with his first workshops for the Australian Indigenous Leadership Canberra in, Centre in Canberra. Joel was nominated for the National Rugby League Ken Stephen Medal for his work in community services this year and won the award in 2016. Please welcome him to the stage. Well, um, good evening. Um, yeah, this is not normally the group I speak to. I do a lot of work with the youth, but uh, tonight I'll be speaking from the heart, I guess. Um, I, I prepared for this uh, for a while now. Uh, I was going to speak about the mindset project and you know my story, but uh, tonight I'm going to be I'm going to be sharing the the full story and probably the first time I've really spoken about uh, my mental health journey. Um, you know, uh, publicly. So, um, you know, it's something really tough, but, you know, over the last three weeks, I've lost two friends to suicide. Um, a proud Aboriginal man, I only seen him at the Koori knockout, um, you know, weeks ago, and uh, we lost him, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, that, that really hurt. Um, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I could cry up here with tears, but it, it did hurt. Um, and then on Sunday, I lost another family friend, uh, from a place called Gundigai, and, and that hurt because I grew up and I watched him as a young man grow into the man he was, and again, they, they hid their mental health battles. And, and tonight, I'm, I'm going to share my full story. I'm, I'm going to share from the heart. You know, I've been told by my manager and by people in the rugby league circles, don't be honest about everything, but, um, you know, <laughs> which is a shame. And, you know, I have spoken publicly before. Um, you know, I've done a campaign of the NRL, NRL State of Mind, uh, about seeking help in 2011 um, and, and different stuff along that. But I haven't really shared the full story and, and you, girl, you guys and girls uh, will get it tonight. So uh, I'll start from the beginning. Um, I come from a small community called Ivanhoe. Anyone here know where Ivanhoe is? Yeah, one, couple, yeah. So it's a few. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really small community. It's, it's far west New South Wales. Um, it's a population of about 200, 300, depending who's there. Uh, we've got a jail there. Um, there's not much happening out there. I've got my beautiful grandmother who lives out there still, but um, that's where I call home. Um, my mum fell pregnant out there to a, to a farmer, from a white, to a white farmer. Um, at the time, he didn't really acknowledge me as his son, so it was a tough start from the beginning for my mum and for myself. Um, over the next 13 years was, was a roller coaster. I could, you know, it's probably 
there's other ways to probably explain it, but it, it was a really difficult upbringing, I guess, for 13 years. Um, I say 13 years because around 13, 14, I got put into my NENS care and I guess my life really did change. But um, the 13 years, there was, there was a lot of drug, alcohol abuse, a lot of domestic violence, um, you know, which probably scarred me in a big way, um, or it definitely did. Um, at the time, I didn't, I didn't really think it, it was hurting me, but I guess as I grew, I knew how bad, as I got older, I knew how bad it was. Um, I guess flashbacks and stuff, um, really started to haunt me around the age of 18. And, you know, before that, you know, I knew it was, it was a tough upbringing. I knew that. I knew it was a tough environment. Um, but I was around everyone else that was pretty much very similar. So, um, it's not until I got older that I realised, you know, what it was. But um, I haven't got enough time to go through my whole story. But I guess um, around 13, um, you know, my mum's house was raided for drugs and different, there was a lot of things happening. It was a very toxic environment. And I went into my nan's care. I ran across to my nan's house um, and I stayed at my nan's house. And, uh, you know, it was, it was the first time I could put my head on the pillow and, you know, go to sleep without being, you know, feeling anxiety or feeling something was going to happen. And, and that was sort of a lot of kids and the kids I work with now, that's the sort type of life they live. You know, they go to bed and, you know, how we can go to bed and put our head in the pillow and, you know, go to sleep without worrying. But, you know, I always for a long time just really struggled to sleep. I'd always, you know, be nervous about something happening. And when I went to my nan's care, beautiful woman, um, she never drank or smoked in her life. She worked super hard, very respected out there in the community. And she started teaching me some values. You know, I didn't have respect for the police officers. Uh, I didn't have respect for teachers. I didn't have respect for myself. I, you know, she started, you know, teaching me how to speak to people correctly. Um, even stuff like, you know, little things like having your clothes washed and ironed and going to school with a full stomach, you know, all those little things, you know, I was, I'm so grateful for that. Um, and, you know, with her help, she got me put into boarding school. I'm taking this on a journey here, sorry. <laughs> got me put into a boarding school. So I went to a Red Bend Catholic college. I was so out of place, you know. I was a, such a rough kid and, um, you know, I struggled to make eye contact. Um, you know, when teacher was telling me something, if I didn't agree to it, I'd, you know, get angry and kick chairs or swear or, and, you know, I'm there with all these rich kids. I was broke. I, I was, I definitely fell out of place. And, um, little things like, you know, using a knife and fork, I really struggled using a knife and fork, which I still struggle now. My wife has to help me here and there. And when we go out, um, but just little life skills, I just didn't really know how to do. And, I went to a boarding school and the discipline of having me socks pulled up and me tie straight and, you know, it was all, it was all these little things I look back that really put me in the right direction. And um, from there, I started playing rugby league, uh, put me anger into something, started playing rugby league and very lucky enough to be picked up by the Melbourne Storm. And again, it was a moment that changed my life, you know, probably three or four years before that, I was doing break and enters, I was stealing cars, I was just heading down to a path, the path that, you know, I didn't know anything different. Um, so now I sign a contract and bang, my life changes again. And um, now I've finished school, done my HSC, didn't get the best mark, but, you know, I had a crack. And um, from there, um, went down to Melbourne Storm. So I'm heading down to, you know, a team that I've watched on TV. I'm looking at guys like Greg Inglis and Billy Slater and, you know, these, can I put this up? Sorry. I'm sick of ducking. <laughs> Um, 
Yeah, so I'm going down the Melbourne Storm, Bush Kid. You know, I gave you a real quick journey, but I'm going down there. I'm out of my comfort zone again. Um, but I'm, I'm heading in the right direction. You know, I've come a long way in that short space at that boarding school. And um, I was unfit. I, I didn't know how to train hard. I didn't know how to eat well. You know, I was this raw bush kid ringing me then all the time. Then I've had enough. I'm coming home. She's like, son, you're making me proud. You stick it out. You know, you think about what's happening back here. You're making all these kids proud. Look at some of the people back here. You know, you, you, you've got to crack at doing something for your life. And I'd stick it out. And um, I remember one, one drill before the Christmas break and I was going home. I, I didn't put my foot over the line correctly. So I pulled up short. Only a little bit, but the trainer saw it. His name's Alex Corvo. He's a Warriors trainer. He was, I still have nightmares about him. But he, he spotted that foot not going over the line. And um, he made the whole group redo that fitness drill. And, you know, I was already struggling. Like, I was unfit. I was really just really struggling, you know, Melbourne and everything, being so far away. And, again, I was on the phone. And then, then I'm not coming back here after Christmas. I'm coming home to live at Ivanhoe. She's like, son, you're not, you're not living here. You're staying there. You're going back to Melbourne. Um, but, you know, I stuck it out. And those phone calls really helped me in a long way. But by then, my mum, for some reason, really struggled in big time and got kicked out of housing and, you know, was just really battling. And by then, I had a a couple of more brothers and sisters and they were living in Canberra and um, I rang my manager, I said, Dave, can you get me to Canberra? He's like, Joel, I'm going to tell you right now, do not leave Melbourne, you're at the best club, you're going to you know, do everything you want to do at this club, it's a, they want to keep you there. I said, I want to go and help me mum, I want to go and help me brothers and sisters, I know what they're going through, I lived that life, I, you know, it hurt me, it's, you know, I want to try and do the best I can. And Anyway, they got in contact with the Canberra Raiders, I signed there, um, I went down there as a 19-year-old and I guess my childhood sort of come back to hurt me. This is where I guess I sort of started to notice my mental health wasn't, you know, the best. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to make my NRL debut um, at 19, played against the Bulldogs, played terrible, but I, did, I didn't really care, you know. I'm, it was a dream for me to play NRL, so I did it. And um, But... I guess for me, the, the trauma and just the nightmares started to increase and I just I was just not happy with myself and not happy with the world I was in and um, I was just drinking and partying and just, you know, and when I mean drinking, it's not going to a pub to have 10 schooners. I was drinking for days and I was just really treating myself really poorly and, um, you know, I got myself stood down. I got I got assault charge put on me and my contract, my dreams, you know, it's all over, it's all done. But I knew I was innocent, but I put myself in that situation with hanging with the wrong people and drinking and putting myself in, you know, a bad situation. And I come back, went through the court system, done all that, and but I was still in a, you know, in a destruction mode. I was just drinking and really struggling. And the thoughts of, you know, um, Suicide, I guess, started to creep in um, in a big way and I just didn't know how to deal with it. Like I was brought up to be tough, you know, my uncles and that. If any weakness, I'd get slapped, you know, if I cried. And it helped me be a footballer, you know, it helped me be a, the type of footballer I wanted to be, a tough footballer. But I guess I didn't know how to handle these sort of uh, what was going on inside my head in a way. And um I battled along and I didn't know who to talk to. You know, I didn't want to go and talk to my mate. I didn't want to talk to my coach because I wanted to prove myself as a you know, young footballer. Um, and there was a period there, again, uh, I met a girl. She's my beautiful wife. Um, but I was only with her for about a month. So I went to her house. 
after drinking, called in sick to training, sort of the same sort of story with my life at that time. Um, sitting on a balcony and, and I started for some reason, which has probably saved me life and got me speaking here, but for some reason I started sharing with her what was happening inside my head, and which was weird because you know I never spoke about it before. I didn't speak about my childhood. I didn't want to use it as an excuse. I didn't want to look. I didn't want people to feel sorry for me. But I started sharing, you know, what was happening, and um, she made me go and see a counsellor. And you know, it wasn't the first time I went to counselling before, but it was um, enforced by the club. So drug and alcohol. I'd get in trouble at a nightclub, and I'd go, you know, go to a counsellor. You have to do ten sessions. I'd go in there and. You know, not really take it on board, didn't really share what was happening. But I went to this counsellor, took it serious, shared what happened, cried like a baby, let all this stuff out. And um, she, she said, you've got a story. You've got, you got a very powerful story. You need to find a purpose. You need to find um, something in your life to give you some balance. So from there, I started volunteering uh, with a guy named Ken Nagus, ex-Raider champion. But I started tagging along with him to the Juvenile Justice Centre. And, um, you know, for me... I connected with the kids. I, you know, even now if I do some mentoring at Reby or one of the juvies, I'll come back and start speaking like the kids and straight away I connected with the kids and, you know, I felt at home with these kids and I was like, oh, this is pretty cool, you know. We come from very similar backgrounds or connect in some way and um, I'm giving these kids hope, you know. That's all they need sometimes, hope and a role model that, you know, they've come from this, he's done this, he's been through this, let's, you know, this is a bit of hope and um, from there... I um, continued to do that type of work. I had, is it up there? My first program, I had at uh, a place called Indigenous Leadership Centre in Canberra. I volunteered there, put a youth program together, and I really loved it. You know, they graduated one of my, at my, one of my games, and I continued doing my community work, and, but I was still struggling here and there, and um, along the way, I still talked to professionals, and um, so I got diagnosed once for being bipolar. Here it is, first time I spoke about it publicly. Um, so I went and seen the club organise me to go and speak to someone. Um, and it's the first time, you know, I've been told I've got, bi- I've got bipolar and um, never spoke about it before. You know, I haven't spoken to all you strangers, but um, there's only a few people I could count on my hand that know about it. And um, I denied it. I was like, no, nah, I don't want that. Like, that's not me. And the reason, there's a few reasons why I didn't want to accept it for what it was because my mum had it. She didn't address it. She didn't handle it correctly. And, I, and the way that she lived her life, you know, I've got three beautiful daughters. I just didn't want to be in that sort of, I didn't want to live like, I just didn't want to be in that sort of same box in a way I used to look at it. And at the time, I denied it, pretend it didn't happen, pretend I didn't hear it. Again, I still struggled. I was at the, by then I signed with the Dragons. So I went to the Dragons, you know, I'd go into these, you know, good times, bad times, you know, I'd go on a three-day drinking bender and just be out of control and I'd come back and I'd be on these crazy lows and I'd go on the training and people used to, call, used to call me the roller coaster, so I'd be always up and down, up and down and, you know, put a bit of a joke on me and I used to sort of know why I was a roller coaster, but I just didn't accept it. Um, again, someone at the club made me go and see someone, went and spoke to a professional. Uh, it was meant to be a massive waiting list, but they got me in there to see him. Um, and this time, by then I had a daughter, Imogen, and this time when um, this Indian lad, Indian guy, legend, um, he sat me down across the chair and he goes, I've been doing this for a long time, you have bipolar. And I went, wow, okay, so... 
I do have it. And, you know, it was the first time I accepted it and I owned my mental health and my mental illness. Like I just accepted it for what it was and I knew it had to be better. Um, so he put me on some medication, you know, which was all good. It definitely helped me out because sometimes the boys wouldn't get me coffee because I'd have coffee at train and I'd be on turbo, like just running around, annoying everyone. I'd be out there tackling too much, too hard. They used to call me test match because I used to train like super hard. But it was just sometimes I was on this crazy manic and high and I, I looked into it more because I avoided it for so long and I realised that's who I am. Like, I've just got to own it. I've just got to accept it for what it is. And, and I did. And, and I have ever since. And I've been in a really good place. And I haven't been on medication. There was a period there where uh, my wife was in the morning, like, putting it in my mouth and making sure I swallowed it, like they do in the jails. And um, because I just wouldn't be taking it for a bit and she'd begin there counting them all, like, you've got to do this. And I went, all right, sweet. So she'd do that in the morning, Amy. She'd put it in my mouth, open my tongue, all right, I'll take it, sleep. Um, but I got into a place and, um, you know, over that time I developed a, a, a mindset project that I'd go out in the community, I'd share it in the communities, remote communities, I'd share it in the jails and I'd share it in the juvies and I just wanted to share my story about hope and, and, and give that inspiration to the kids and people out there that want to hide their mental health and, and not want to speak to anyone about it because, trust me, I was there for a long period of time and I suffered by myself for so long and, you know, when I did start making those steps, it was slow steps, but, you know, the place I'm in now, you know, I don't know if you just watch footy, but this year at Manly, we had the toughest year ever. Like, we were pretty much hanging down the bottom. And, um, you know, all my mates that knew, you know, my story and, um, you know, know that I struggled and I'd go on crazy benders and walkabouts and um, people can't find me. They go, you're in, a, you're in a really good place. I said, I am in a really good place. I'm, I'm so happy with my life and, you know, footy's not everything for me. You know, I've got a beautiful family. I live on the northern beaches, which is a mad spot. I love it. And, you know, everything was good on me, but, they were, you know, they were still worried about me because they knew, you know, what I had and everything else, but, um, you know, I haven't been medicated this year and I've been, you know, I've had the happiest year of my life because the things that I go and speak about, you know, the gratitude stuff, I, I, it's about being grateful for the people I have in my life. It's, you know, having strong support networks, you know. Unfortunately, I haven't spoken to my mum in over two years, but I had to make some decisions in my life that put me in a really good mentally, you know, mental space and a real happy place. And it's not just for me, it's for my daughters and for their life and, um, you know, that's why I'm up here sharing it, first time public, but, you know, after losing a friend on Sunday and, you know, three weeks, I'm like, those are guys that have hid their story. I'm like, um, you know, I was talking to someone, I was like, I'm going to go in here and, and be real with you guys and speak from the heart and, and that's what it's all about. So if you are struggling with someone's out there, you know, just own it and just, you know, do the best for you and live that happy life because it is achievable. So thank you guys. You can just sit here. You can sit here, yeah. Yeah. You just have such a lovely nature. I was just smiling the whole time you were talking. If we're talking about gratitude, then I'm grateful that you just gave that lovely speech. And thank you so much for being vulnerable and sharing um, that about your bipolar disorder as well. It's very brave, and I'm sure everyone here appreciates it as well. Can we get another round of applause? Um, 
we're going to open up a little Q&A. Um, we're going to start with a panel discussion, so I'll kick off with a couple of questions, um, and then we'll open it up to you guys. But we're going to welcome to the stage Professor Ian Hickey and Mark Spinks, please. Professor Ian Hickey is the co-director of health and policy at the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre. He is an NHMRC Senior Principal Research Fellow, 2013 to 2017 and 2018 to 22, 2022 rather, having previously been on the inaugural NHMRC Australian Fellows, he was an inaugural commissioner on the Australia's National Mental Health Commission, overseeing enhanced accountability for mental health reform and suicide prevention. Ian is an internationally renowned researcher in clinical psychiatry with particular reference to medical aspects of common mood disorders, depression and bipolar disorder in young people, early intervention, use of new and emerging technologies, and suicide prevention. Mark Spinks is a proud Aboriginal man from the Barkindji Nation. He's the founder and chairman of the Babana Aboriginal Men's Group that has a strong focus on working with youth around mental health and suicide prevention. And Babana was recently recognised by Suicide Prevention Australia with the 2018 Life Award for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Award category. Mark is also the chairman of the Tribal Warrior Association and sits on the board of the Redfern Foundation. A round of applause, please, for those two gentlemen. So I'm going to come and sit over here now. Can you all still hear me? Oh, technology, when it works, hey? Just amazing. Joel, I'll start with you. Um, your journey is so incredibly powerful. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the, the Mindset Project and how it's making an impact on our youth? Yeah, um, so like I said, I went on this journey uh, when I first seeked help and I wanted to know why I was this certain way and uh, I wanted to find you know, ways that I could be the best version of me. You know, I wanted to be happy, I wanted to be the best footballer I could be because um, you know, that's, what, that's what I wanted at that time. And, on that way, I, I sort of, you know, I read books. I, you know, I went and spoke to professionals. I spoke to sports, you know, psychologists and whatever. And, um, you know, a guy spoke to me about the fixed and growth mindset. And I felt, you know, I never heard of that before in my life. And I went, oh, wow. And, you know, we've done a few sessions on it. And he's like, you know, I felt like the fixed mindset, I had this fixed mindset for so long. I didn't really challenge myself at times. I got frustrated when it got too hard. And, um, you know, I wanted this growth mindset because that's where the magic happens, that growth mindset. So, um, yeah, that's how I got the, the, the mindset project, pretty much the name from that. So, um, you know, I, I use tools and strategies that I've picked up along the way um, with footy. You know, we have people that they pay big money to to come and speak to us to try and get us, you know, to perform the best we can. Be. And along the way, I've picked in pieces and picked brains and spoke to people and put all the best of the best into that sort of little workshop and go out there and first connect with the kids or whoever it is first and share my story and um, share why I like doing what I do and then, you know, providing the tools and strategies. And, you know, it's not, it's not too hard, but it's, it's stuff that they can just go through and put into their life. And I gave give them a little challenge. You know, I was out at St. George, remote Queensland, and you know, and all the kids there, and it's a morning, you know, I took, there was a guy named Hugh from the Resilience Project, he done the gratitude um, journal stuff and talk about, you know, um, 
writing down three things that you're grateful for every day. You know, I think there's a lot of people that do it, and I thought, you know, that's pretty cool. These kids don't know about this. Why, why can't they know about it? And, you know, I refer back to him that I got it off him, and you know, I stole it from him, but, uh, you know, I'll give it to them. And, you know, a little health challenge, and I just want to go out there and give them a little opportunity. You know, you've got to work super hard. That's just the way it is. I like to work super hard, you know, to, to make something to your life. Here's some things that can help you, and here's my story. Here's some hope. I can do it. You can do it. So It's amazing right. how healing um, it can be when you feel understood, and that's obviously, you know, what those children in communities or men and women in communities feel when they, you know, when they hear your story or, you know, when they see that you've been through similar things. Yeah, definitely, and, you know, have I got it right? Probably not, but I just do, I know it, it helps me just as much as I'm helping them, you know. I'm, you know, footy's great and everything, but I feel like I've got a purpose in life. I feel like I've been put here for a reason, and I enjoy going out in the community that I do with, with football sometimes, um, and that's just the way it is. I, I love getting out of bed and knowing I'm going somewhere else to, to share that, and, um, you know, I've got family, I've got two younger brothers, they're 15, and, you know, one's in juvie at the moment looking at two years, and, you know, I'm here with hope, and they know that story but they haven't got it yet but I hope one day when they are ready to change their life and make it and make a thing that they come to me and I can help them with that because it doesn't help everyone but that one out of 10 kids that it does help it changes the course of their life and you know um, you know that's what it's all about. And the Brain and Mind Centre here is doing some excellent work around mental health. Um, what are the projects that you're working on when it comes to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mental health? Well, if I could, I'd just like to thank Joel right off. People sharing their experiences actually is critical to all the things I'll talk about in one sense about getting care. But people don't get care unless they're confident that actually coming forward is actually going to help. And it's really hard in a whole lot of situations to convince people from all sorts of backgrounds that actually care might make a difference. The same as actually Juanita's sharing her experiences. So a lot of what I've been tied up myself in over the last 25 years is encouraging people in the Australian community from all sorts of backgrounds to tell their own stories in their own words. So Joel's story is also really important because of its complexity, right? So it's great you talk about your background in Ivanhoe and how difficult that was and being brought up by your nan and the complexity of that and then later in life coming across the issues of actually this issue of kind of a diagnosis or a medical bit on top of that. And the complexity of that's really important, okay? You know, each of these stories is different goes back to something when he was talking about cultural competency too, about understanding the complexity of those stories and over time, at different stages of your life, different opportunities. So most of what I'm tied up through the Brain and Mind Centre runs through this sort of national headspace network. People might know headspace as a sort of national early intervention framework. They may not know that the University of Sydney is actually one of the shareholders that owns and operates that company, actually. We don't talk about it that much. I don't know why we don't <laughs> talk about it. It's largely attributed to a great work by Pat McGorry and others out of Melbourne. We've, we've been part of that from the start. And initially, it actually focused on going into communities in which there were not services. In regional Australia and rural regional Australia, so we originally operating services in Campbelltown where 13% of the population is Indigenous. We're very proud of the fact that 13% of the kids who come through the door are Indigenous. So typically what happens in most of our services is that Indigenous kids are underrepresented. And that relies on a lot of complex partnerships with Aboriginal health providers, with communities and others. But most importantly, it depends on people like Joel actually telling that kind of story and that kids in trouble, kids in juvenile justice, kids are on the streets, kids are in families that are fundamentally struggling in the disrupted family environments that characterise many Aboriginal kind of communities, particularly in urban settings, is really important. We have services here right in central Sydney in relation to the Redfern communities and others. 
And so the issue about connecting with the community, having people who can tell stories, and then having health services that are actually culturally competent. So even though we're 15 years down the track, I'd say the issue of cultural competence is still a really, really challenging one. So for us, a lot of the work is, you know, how do you then respond earlier? I mean, Joel's just said that other thing, you know, I'm sure in your family, you know, some kids already, brothers, sisters, cousins are already in trouble earlier, kids are in environments that unfortunately, unless you end up in something like elite sport or something, never get care. That issue you said about waiting lists, you know, and I've had the experience of actually seeing the odd NRL player, you know, because somebody cares, you know, the manager, a football coach, a club, a mentor, fortunately go in and get the care that a lot of other people don't. So I think the challenge for us and a lot of work we're tied up in is trying to provide that more widely available, connect with kids earlier in those kind of journeys before they end up with major drug and alcohol problems or major juvenile justice or criminal or other sets of issues and can do what Joel's done, go on and form families of their own that then can provide that care and support. And that's really the goal of a lot of youth mental health. So for us, it's to make sure that we do connect with some of the most disadvantaged communities in Australia rural, regional and urban, where there's a large Indigenous population. It's a big ongoing issue. So that while I'm proud of what we have done, what remains to be done is huge. I mean, you alluded yourself to the national suicide rates. But beyond that, the national sort of disadvantage rates so the younger Aboriginal kids who are often in trouble at a lot younger, high rates of other developmental kind of difficulties, other rates of problems, are going to have more problems, but are less likely to get a service of any sort, let alone get a culturally competent service that understands and responds to the kind of complexity that Joel was just describing. It's, that's really incredible to note that, you know, role models are important, not only in an aspirational sense, you know, so you, can, so you can see it, you can be it, and that sort of gets you out of this cycle of poverty or whatever, but in, in a way that you need it to be able to deal with the trauma that you've been through as well. Yep, so mm. the complexity issue. So mm. one of the difficulties that we have is a lot of the systems we have only, even if they do connect with people, only touch the situation very lightly. And they don't necessarily engage with the community or other people that are really involved in people's lives as well. So at one level, historically, we have a very clinical kind of model that just focuses on the person. So when I was involved, I've just left the National Mental Health Commission after six years. I'm not sure they've been successful or not. But we had tried to adopt a more broader framework of social and emotional well-being to be sort of less clinical, to okay to person as in the Aboriginal sort of drawings up here, much more within their community and with much more within their connected kind of selves. That still is an issue that we struggle to actually translate into real life. So we need people to be able to tell the sort of stories that Joel has been telling, to make that real for people. And again, I think just the hope aspect of that, just to pick up that, that actually good care does matter. Getting in earlier, getting in a way that's culturally appropriate, connecting with the people around you, then the complexity of what the situation is for you, illness-wise, trauma-wise, background-wise, drug and alcohol-wise, whatever else is going on, can be responded to in an appropriate way. Joel made another interesting thing, which I'd say about the area of work movement, is very much put an emphasis on not just the treatment of the mental health aspect, but are you going to school? Are you getting an education? Are you going into employment as really important? And, and, and the stable home environment, whatever that home might be, the home you come from or the home you're creating for yourself, these are the broader sort of social context of mental health is critical to any effective care provision and where it really goes. Mark, in, in your experience, um, when it comes to Babana and, and men sharing, what is the reaction like when they see someone share that they've been um, dealing with serious mental health issues? Good question. Um, I'd like to refer to Joel's talk tonight with respect to my own life. 
My Aboriginal grandmother raised me as well. And I think if you're a First Nations person in this room tonight, you'd acknowledge that your grandparents played a huge part in your life. In my case, it was a proud Aboriginal woman by the name of Thelma Collis who raised me in the town of Burke. Um, got us from dirt floors and corrugated tin to a housing commission. Praise that lady. Praise that lady. Saved my life. Um, look, I started Babana about 15 years ago now. I was working for Centrelink. And uh, ironically, I started it because I was working with parolees and I kept seeing the same eight blokes lying to me about being on drugs and bashing their wives and leading a straight life. And they'd be gone the next week and there'd be another, another eight. Then the new eight came back and now I'm doing their, okay. So I threw away, threw away line where at the settlement down in Chippendale, I said to start a men's group next week. I've got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I turned up that week and there was 40 blokes in the backyard waiting for me. And I went, shit, what, what have I done? What do we do now? So very basically, you know what we did? We put chairs in a circle and we had a yarn and we listened and we listened to the stories that were told. You know, to think that we've been going all these years now and all the things that we do do, if you Google Baban, you'll see the work that we do do. Um, to the extent that last Friday we took 200 of our people to go to Ireland for a suicide prevention event and we did workshops. Um, you can imagine, you know, you ask someone to go to an island and feed them and they're looking at the ferries and the prince was on the bridge as we went under and they think, well, what am I going to do a workshop? They all participated because they were there for a reason. They were affected in some way or they knew someone who was. And there were some people here tonight, I won't name them, embarrass them, uh, that I know were with me last Friday. So it's just a matter of listening to the conversations to share uh, and show support. Um, you know, so many people have trouble to sit and listen to their fellow men. Um, it costs nothing and some people struggle with that. But if you put that effort in, they'll soon respect you and they'll soon turn up for all your meetings. We, we've had meetings here at this university, up to 200 people. I don't pay them. So they come for a reason, don't they? And I think they come for a common cause. And I'm hearing that in young Joel tonight. We're going to open it up to questions from you guys shortly. So if you've got one that you're sitting on, put your hand up and we'll get a mic to you. Um, Joel, I'll come back to you. Um, the NRL recognises players for their involvement in community work. How special was it for you to be nominated um, for the Ken Stevens Award and knowing, you know, sort of what your struggles were and kind of probably feeling quite hopeless at times and then knowing that you're out there helping other people? Yeah, no, it was big. Um, not, not just for me, but for the people, you know, in the NRL team and the community team and the people at the club, you know, I've always had these ideas of wanting to go out, you know, I want to do some work out at Albury because I lost a cousin of suicide out there. So, um, you know, they backed me, they, they paid for me flights and organised schools and they didn't have to do that. We didn't do any media around it. We went to, you know, we would have seen probably over a thousand kids, but there was nothing to do. They just wanted to help. And it was good to be a part of someone, you know, an organisation like the NRL. And, you know, they helped me. They, oh, sorry. They, um, they helped me and give me the life. And, you know, I was just doing mine. And to be recognised with the Ken Stevens, you know, it was massive, like I said. And it was for my wife as well, you know. When I sacrificed time from my wife and my family and from my kids to go out and do some community stuff, you know, she, she knows it helps me and what I'm doing out there. So it was for them as well, you know, to, to get that. Do we have any questions? 
Wanna take a hit? Hello. Hey, uh, my name's Claire. I just wondered what your thoughts were on the role of the education department in terms of providing more support for young people with um, mental health. I know that for a lot of public schools, you know, school counsellors are there maybe once a fortnight. I just, yeah, wanted to know what your thoughts were in terms of how they potentially can provide more support for young people and get in on that early intervention. Hey, what do you think of that? Yeah, sort of a there's sort of a catch-22 here. Um, we want schools to fix everything now. So most schools actually are quite aware of the extent of mental health issues in younger people. And many have engaged to various degrees in various mental health education promotion programs. Probably the biggest thing is the gap between education and healthcare. Uh, healthcare hasn't been here to help. <laughs> really. So schools are dealing with a lot of issues and a lot of, some degree of even pushback now from teachers in schools sort of saying, look, we can't do everything. We can't do the education and the healthcare and the sort of pastoral support and whatever. So schools remain an incredibly important environment for connection with early intervention, with healthcare promotion, and most of their personal development programs will continue to grow. It is grossly under-resourced at the moment. And the way effectively linking into healthcare will happen in the future has, hasn't been resolved. There's a lot to be done on the healthcare side. I'm personally associated with a lot of use of technology for earlier identification, for bringing people in, for sharing between people, for connecting people. Rather than seeing technology as death, we see technology as the future. <laughs> you know, actually, if I just reach for my mobile phone here, you know, being able to use the obvious technologies to connect earlier into issues in partnerships with schools, but also in partnerships with families and communities around schools. So I think the other issue with schools, and when we work with schools, is go and ask them, are you serious? Do you actually connect with the community that your school actually serves? And who are your partners in healthcare? Because it's not something you want to do on your own. So the other issue in some of the work I've been involved with with schools myself is the school-to-school -school variability is huge. Some schools really do a good job. Other schools are not. And the variability within their schools is, and that's a leadership issue within schools as well. So schools is an enormous focus at the moment, but. I don't think it is education departments on their own or even schools on their own. We haven't really put the systems around schools in terms of schools in communities, how do they serve that and how does the community participate with the school? And then really healthcare hasn't really connected with schools in ways. The volume of healthcare to be done and assisted with needs to be done by healthcare in partnership with schools to, to really be effective. If it's just pushed back on teachers and schools, we won't succeed. Um, I think we're at a very exciting turning point and things could go very well or very badly in terms of mental health. There's so much material now about um, how mental health is a complex issue and yet it still seems to be addressed largely as a biomedical uh, focus. Uh, education is considered so important and yet our prisons and our uh, mental health institutions are having such a hard time to bring forward education and technologies that give people choices and, and something positive to focus on. I, I think, Joel, your story is incredible and your courage to um, present that was really, is really touching, but it, it, it reveals the complexity and I don't think our systems are doing that. With NDIS, if you're under 25, you're not going to get um, assistance. If you're um, 
juvenile justice. A lot of the kids are totally missing out. And I'm still finding on a political basis and also on a personal basis in terms of my own family, a biomedical approach, a very shallow, lacking lacking, uh, a focus on social supports and economic independence that keep people out of prisons and try and avoid them doing doing stuff that's because they're in, in poverty and disadvantage. What can be done to make the rhetoric that's happening now become our reality? Jo- one last thing, Joel is what, I'd cons- what I think the term is a peer ambassador. And what I hear in Mental Health Month is that people are saying, we need volunteers to do this stuff, right? We are going to have a very impoverished mental health system if we rely only on volunteers, even if they're incredible people like Joel. We have to open up to paid peer workers who are experienced and who through their lived experience can actually contribute and get on to do the kind of help that Babana and many others are doing. What I want to know is what really works because what we've had so far is keeping people incarcerated and incredible disadvantage to kids that are too young. Um, That it's taken policy makers so long to catch up with, um, you know, with the really good quality research that we've had for, for quite a while now. Who are you asking? Do you want a really short or really long Who answer? Who wants to have a go? I'd ask it <laughs> Look, you raised... Sorry, what's your name? Loretta's raised a whole lot of really serious issues about... Now, in the good news bit, okay, is Australia's like the most mentally healthy aware, like awareness of mental health on earth, right? I've just written a paper with my colleague Sebastian Rosberg from Canberra about no gold medals, however, on the service side, right? So we're way ahead gold medal winners on our understanding. And then events like this and, you know, demonstrate that. The level of sophistication of the discussion in Australia about mental health issues is very high. But we're operating with 19th and 20th century healthcare systems and also a complex federated system of health being separated from education, being separated from social welfare, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, and we're sort of parked in those 19th and 20th century, largely hospital, I don't know about biomedical, I'd say hospital-based models of care. So they're not very community-based, they're not very social, they're not very connected sorts of models of care. Some of you may or may not have noticed, myself and Professor Alan Fells have been tied up with the thing in recent times of a Productivity Commission review. That's about changing the financing systems. That's about structural change to respond to the systems. I mean, you end up with the systems you pay for at the moment and the way they're structured. Now, one several, it sounds very esoteric about the like, Productivity Commission, like who cares, you know, but it's actually about the economics of where does money go for what. So the issue is about peer workforces, about who does what, what the payment systems are, what the links with education are, what works with welfare, what bleeds into juvenile justice. They're actually at the heart of those things, that if you have a health system, and this was fundamentally what we pay for, if you think Medicare works, good luck. It doesn't. You know, so simply saying we have an equitable system doesn't mean it's a system that actually works in complex areas. It's a medical financing system in a, in a fee-for-service way largely that outside of hospitals doesn't work, in com- doesn't work for complexity. So on your point about a tipping point, I totally agree with that. If we settle for a really dumb kind of simple system in the face of complex issues like Joel so beautifully described, we'll continue to get poor return for our investment. So I'm one of those people that says, look, there's a lot more money that needs to go in, but it needs to go in smart, not dumb. 
It needs to be regionalised by community. If you're living in Ivanhoe, it's not the same as you're living in Redfern or in Campbelltown or in Central Sydney or the Northern Beaches or now Manly, Northern Beaches. It's really different. <laughs> Apparently Wentworth's different. No one else is like that. You know, like we have this sense that all the places that we live are different and they are and they have different challenges, different communities. So there's issues around regionalisation which are running in Australia which are really important. The next issue is about coordination. So I'm personally part of this sort of group that says, look, there has to be serious structural reform to pay the right workforces to the right things, use technologies, drag us kicking and screaming into the 21st century that is much more responsive to individuals and their complexity and the communities in which they live. Now, whether that ever gets through... So uh, I think what's happened in Australia in a good way is awareness is very high. We put a lot of emphasis in the last 20 years on just increasing the amount of service, not necessarily the quality or the responsiveness of the service, we now live in an age where you can use personal technologies and other things to drive back into real time. You don't just have to accept what comes from above as being good enough. It isn't. But it is an interesting thing because I think the sceptics and others and the cynics in the area would say the history of public policy in this area is not good. It's bad. It's non-responsive. It's been non-responsive to Indigenous people. It's been non-responsive to communities. It's largely been centralised, top-down. So, But I think... We have reached a degree, an area, or a time of sophistication. The community voice in that needs to remain strong. The NDIS example is a very good one, in fact, of a community totally disadvantaged by and totally inappropriate systems turning it on its head. Now, we're now in, in can we fix it? And I think in the mental health world, same thing. We now need to move to what is the serious structural reform and the people who need to have the greatest voice in that are those who have the greatest need to use those services. So I think the other issue is what will be the dominant voices in that reform process? And that I think is highly contestable, you know, so that actually giving voice and being organised and being part of that dialogue is really important over the next two to five years. And lived mainly... Callum Park in Roselle, which was is the site for Sydney College of the Arts that's supposedly soon to close, um, was actually purchased for mental health consumers and it would be the ideal place to create a peer movement which really does address the social, psychological and the economic through social enterprise. It could really be a place of self-determination and, and we should be grabbing those opportunities and building on that, not, not closing down campuses where art and health are critical. Um, that's one example I, I can add, but it's a very complex issue and uh, thanks for listening. Any other questions? Or one here? Oh, one here as well. They're popping up everywhere now. Hi, my name is Nathan. I work at Youth Off the Streets. Um, firstly, Joel, I just really appreciate your story, uh, a lot of courage, and I just hope that your generosity will just go on and benefit other people. There's no shame in revealing all. Um, the vast majority of psychological research is aimed at how um, a therapist can make a difference uh, in, a, in a particular setting. But what I just heard um, from both Mark and Joel uh, was how transformative their relationship with their grandmothers were. So I'm just wondering uh, if we're looking at culturally appropriate mental health responses to young Indigenous people, 
what, what are the implications then for people here who are looking at interventions? How do we need to kind of change the way we're looking at that if grandma's where it's at? Juanita, do you have something that you'd like to add? I think every black has had a stint living with their nan, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> we can see everyone yeah, nodding definitely. there. I have too. <laughs> the key thing to do is to stop taking children from their families. Um, this is the critical issue that is impacting on our well-being. And our grandmothers have been, I mean, like you, my grandmother was my key person as well. And they are vital to our well-being. And I think it's critical that we really start providing support to families who've been removed instead of punishing them by taking their children from them. And um, I, I see that that's probably the biggest causation of why a lot of our people end up inside in prison as well. So we've got to stop the stolen generations occurring. This is a critical um, and political space that we really need to recognise is hurting our communities along with racism. There is a new thing under the Commonwealth, which is the Me and Minds mission under the new Medical Research Future Fund. And there are three targeted areas in that. One is child and youth. The other is Indigenous, in fact. And I don't totally agree with your analysis of the particular thing. I think there are a lot of people who are interested in understanding what are the best ways of organising interventions in anything other than just a simple individual clinical type thing. It is true of the last 30 years of individual psychology, I'd say there's been a focus on the individual, simply what is in your own head type things. But there's a much richer and wider tradition of uh, social mental health sort of strategies and of necessarily family and community-based strategies, particularly about the importance of grandparents, independent of culture, in the development of children. So Tom Karma, for example, is part of the major advocacy for what's been the Indigenous strategy within the Million Minds thing. This is 125 million over the next five years, you know, sort of stuff, significant money, has been around early childhood development and it's cognitive emotional readiness for school. And a lot of the issues that about effective interventions there are tied up in family interventions, family stability, and I must say, I'm in the wrong way around, what's really good for the cognitive health of both the child and the grandparent. <laughs> is actually, it's good for the grandparent too. And I must say, to Mark, one of the things with Ted Wilkes in Western Australia is actually keeping Indigenous men of a certain age alive long enough to actually participate so it isn't all about their grandmother either. That are simply are men who've gone missing from various generations continuing to participate. So the whole of that sort of issue, I think it'd be fair to say there is actually a lot of emphasis on that. Taking those things to scale has been more complex because of the complex nature of the communities, Indigenous communities, and their, their fundamentally different nature in different places in Australia. But people like Pat Dudgeon and whatever who've been running very large kind of national programs, they're long in their gestation. You know, if they're genuine and they're involving communities and bringing that together, they don't translate into simple, you know, uh, interventions and programs. So they don't fit with simple Medicare payments or with simple kind of other systems. They're longer and they're more complex in their arrangements. I think the issue of trying to sustain the research and development of those and then provide sustainable funding as, instead of relying on volunteers or instead of relying on ad hoc arrangements and people trying to just do the best they can has been very problematic. But I think, again, there's a sort of 
national commitment to try and seriously for the first time do that differently. And the strongest voices in that are Indigenous voices like Tom Karma and Pat Dudgeon and others in arguing for that it's got to come from the community and then have a lot of rigour behind it in order to get sustainability. Hi, uh, my name is Grace. Um, Joel, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, I want to say I also have bipolar, so I totally appreciate you for sharing that and how difficult that must have been. Um, I also found it really interesting that you said you're not on any medication at the moment and that you're going well. I find that really impressive um, and kind of fascinating because I'm on a truckload of medication <laughs> um, at the moment. Um, and I th wanted to ask probably particularly Professor Hickey um, sort of what I feel that there's a pressure when you get a medical diagnosis, even though there is such complex stories behind um, mental ill health, there is a pressure to go on um, medication. I was wondering your insights into um, what other interventions there may be for people, young people particularly, um, suffering diagnoses such as bipolar disorder. So slightly, sorry, what's your name? Grace. Grace. So Grace, just to sort of, the whole point of the earlier intervention thing, if you like, is the, the earlier you can intervene with people, and this is, this is really the issue made very famous by Pat McGorry, our Australian of the year in 2010, and really just with him in Boston overseas, is the earlier you can intervene in these particular things, then the chance of having to use medication per se as distinct from other strategies is less. So one of the big drivers in this sort of early intervention thing is not necessarily to end up in a medical crisis, where in a crisis you may well need to start medication in an acute situation if you could get in earlier. The whole issue about medication courses and the issue about whether you need to medication for short periods of time or long periods of time or whatever is much more likely to be personalised in particular and also much more likely to be contextualised within your whole life. And what else works for you? Whether physical activity and exercise really good, getting really fit. I love that story that he cheated on the test and, you know, had to do it again because the, there's a lot of evidence that the fitter you can get physically, you know, affects the course of a better your sleep wake cycle. The, the drug and alcohol story is a bad story, you know, like reducing drug and alcohol. So what works for you? What other things in your situation, the cognitive thing that Joel was just talking about, getting straight in your head, the sort of cognitive therapy kind of bit, you know, what other things actually work at an individual level is something where you need to work with somebody or with a system over time to figure out for yourself the right balance. Now, it's like diabetes. Some people have to take insulin for life, okay? And there's no point in stigmatising that and saying, no, you're simply well when you're off medication if you require insulin to stay alive. And we shouldn't be bad about that. That's true. For other people, you know, weight gain, weight reduction, exercise, diet, and whatever, they don't. And at different times of their life, the complexity of bipolar disorder is its on-off nature. I saw a man on my way here this afternoon who's suddenly better this afternoon, having been terrible for the last two years. I don't know why. He doesn't know why, but we vote very grateful. We're pretty convinced it isn't the medication. And he's been doing a mad physical exercise thing, but we don't know why. We don't know why, but it's improved. He's still alive, right? And his you know, work and everything else is improving. So one of the things is, comes back to Loretta's question about complexity. It is having health system and systems that work with you so you get to know your own situation and be able to make then the judgments yourself over time. For something like bipolar disorder, which does have a nat naturally cyclic nature, there are times when you do or not. When I used to do a lot of work with Gary McDonald in Beyond Blue, he used to talk about the fact, why, be, you know, why make a fuss about medication? At times he needs to take medication. Other times he does great sort of uh, yoga and relaxation and doesn't. But at different times in his life, for different reasons that are not always apparent, there are ups and downs. And so what... Where, what we've really struggled with is to stay engaged with people long enough to figure out what works for you so that you can then become in control of that. 
and what individually might be the different balance between medication, other strategies, relaxation, exercise, you know, other sets of things. So you have the most productive life. I would make the general comment, the one that's probably, and probably relevant in these audiences is social connection. So we talk a lot about individual strategies. And one of the things I personally hate is the notion that resilience is an individual characteristic. You know, it's just like me, it's not. It's a social characteristic. So the other issue is the quality of people's relationships. And Joel was just talking about the importance in his own life now of his marriage and his kids and family. You know, that these play incredibly important roles for all of us in, in our mental health and well-being. Why social and emotional well-being is a much better terminology than individual illness sort of um, narratives, if you like. So I'd say, Grace, the real issue is, you know, being intervening early and long enough and then at this stage you're at to get a much better idea what works for you. And for a lot of people, as Joel was saying, they may have periods with on medication, off medication. They may, they may find a situation. Also, just illnesses change over time. These illnesses typically start in adolescence. They may have childhood precursors. But as actually people grow up, I don't say growing up here, Joel, but actually it's much better <laughs> sometimes when people are 25, right, than when they were 15. The course of these things actually also changes as the brain develops, as other things happen, as the world changes. So people can have really bad periods, often with high medication use, in their teens, but that may not be the case later in life. The point is being alive and functional enough to have a good life. <laughs> yeah, just to back him up, um, everything you just said was pretty much explained me. I, I changed my lifestyle, you know, I, I changed, um, you know, the way I ate, what food I, I put into my body, um, mindfulness. I never even heard of mindfulness, but, you know, I tried breathing exercises, which really helped, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit edgy or feel, not feeling myself. and all this different stuff, training well, you know, putting good people around me. Uh, I just changed my whole world in a way and I, I just made it because I knew I wanted to be better and over time I felt, you know, I'm in a really good place at the moment. Um, I want to, you know, see um, if I can, you know, slowly come off the medication and see where it's at and my wife agreed with me, you know, it's like I said before, it's just, Football-wise, it was probably the most difficult year, but it's the happiest I was. And um, so I slowly come off it. Was I nervous? 100%. So was my wife. And um, But I, I come off it and I, I felt really happy and I, I feel really good and in a really good place. If if things go pear-shaped, well, I'll obviously I'll probably go back on the medication. But at the moment, I'm, I'm loving life and, and just riding it at the moment. So that's where it's at. Mark, are these the sort of strategies that you employ at Babana as well? mindfulness and, and early intervention? Yeah, yeah I'd, I'd, um, I'd have to agree with that. You know, I'd like everyone to know I'm a child of the 50s and 60s when time stood still. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the welfare officers and the mental health services in my day, my uncles, was alcohol. Um, I saw my uncle come back from Second World War damaged, badly damaged. Couldn't go to the RSL because he was black, but... He dealt with his depression and what he saw overseas through alcohol. And it leads into why we started the Colour Digger Anzac Day March in Redfern. That march has, has grown every year with thousands march of us now. But that's a way of healing for me. You know, the people that come and tell their stories, that's a way of healing. It's very simple, really. Um, and not all these things cost millions of dollars. We don't get it. Um, I think you touched on money earlier. God, you'd, you'd want to know where some of these millions are going. I think a lot of it's going in administration. Um, what we do as a community service, for example, um, I paid 3500 for that island, fed everyone and took them to an island last week. But you've got to understand, people came from Burke, Campbelltown, Liverpool, Central Coast. They came to us 
and participated in workshops. Now we've got to collate that information and spread that word. What we found that day, and the stories varied, but a lot of it came back to abuse of alcohol and grog and men bashing their wives and so depressed that they went out and took their lives because they were dirty and filthy on what they did, but they did it under grog and alcohol. You, you follow me? So we've got to listen more. I remember when the Prime Minister made the sorry announcement right back in the day and they did the healing workshop. So I facilitated Redfern and Dubbo and I'd heard they'd had trouble in Alice Springs in Tasmania and I asked them how they did the workshops. And when they told me, I said, I know how to fix it. And the way I fixed it was sitting near Auntie and say, tell me your story. That's all she wanted to do. We went to Dubbo, Aunt, tell us your story. And they were so grateful. That was healing. Think about it. It's very simple, isn't it? I'm not educated as a professor, but what I'm talking to you from is a street level. Listen. Listen to the stories. Everyone's got a story. Everyone in this room's got a story. But who's prepared to listen? Simple for me. Sort of goes back to what Joel was talking about before, you know, being heard and being understood. It just goes to the core of who we are as humans, isn't it? It doesn't matter, um, you know, how successful or, you know, how impoverished we are. To be understood is, is a pretty incredible thing. Um, I think there was another question over here. You go over there before I start crying. Hello. Hi. <laughs> um, my name's Caleb, and um, I just wanted to say thank you for coming out and sharing your insights about um, such an interesting topic. And um, just listen to your story, Joel, about um, about your experience, and just just making sure they're just telling everyone that you know we're not alone in this, and building that connection, and really thinking about your experience, listening to your experience about um, you in the football club, and you know with you and your teammates when there's something something's not right, you won't share about it. And it just reminded me that potentially could one of the aspects of toxic masculinity be you know being a barrier for, a, for men seeking help uh, for services. And uh, my question is to the whole panel. So I wanted to ask, what's something practical that we can start doing you know, in the short term that we can start breaking down those barriers of toxic masculinity and, and really promoting men to seek help services, not only in our own communities and family, but also in the, as an ally in um, Indigenous Australian uh, mental health space? Most masculine men in the country. What do you, yeah, I do. How do you speak I do. To your about it? <laughs> I do. Um, I guess it's creating a culture and creating an environment where they do feel safe. I guess when I was coming through, feeling old now, but 11 so years ago, you know, coming through Melbourne Storm and then coming into uh, Raiders, being a young man, the environment, there wasn't too much around mental health or, um, you know, or. I didn't know anyone else around me who spoke about going through different battles or struggling or anything. So, um, you know, I think more, you know, having people like myself and other people out there have come through it and spoke and uh, I guess want to give that hope and share their story. That will help others feel comfortable more. You know, the amount of young guys that have come up to me, um, you know, when I was at Dragons, not so much at Manly, but I, you know, I had a couple of young guys that have spoken to me on the side and said how they're struggling. One was homesick, who was from Queensland, and um, you know, they knew my story and they knew that I've been through, you know, that I struggled. And they, they, they were the same. They just knew my story, so they felt comfortable to come and speak to me. And I think the more we have that, um, you know, the NRL do such a great job. You know, the NRL State of Mind campaign that I did and had my wife speak on it, and I spoke about it. You know. 
know, the amount of feedback and people getting in touch with me going, you know, you really inspired me to speak up, to go and get help. And that's what it's really what it's all about because I wasn't so confident at the start to share my story. I was, you know, I didn't really want to do it, to be honest. And um, my wife kept encouraging me, you, know, you should go and keep on doing what you're doing. You know, you connect with the kids, but share about your battles. And I eventually end up doing it. And um, I think that's the way forward for us. I think it's sharing, listening. Um, like Uncle said, it's about you know connecting through that way and um, creating that environment where kids do uh, everyone feels safe to you know to share that they are struggling and they know the people to go to and you know that's what. I think. Your wife sounds incredible, by the way. I think we she's should a good invite woman. her next yeah. time. She should have come. I should have brought her. Yeah, she's been through it all and she's been a big supporter of me. And you know, we talk about coming off medication. You know, with her help and my family and the good people I have in my life. You know, they've been a big reason behind that and. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky. Mark, how do you, uh, what advice would you have to people in, in having difficult conversations when it comes to toxic masculinity? Well, I, I think I touched on that when I said uh, I was a child of the 50s and 60s with times and still they dealt with it with alcohol. Um, look, there's so many services available now. You, I mean, you touched about mental services and the schools. I do think we expect too much of the schools and with respect to all the services that are out there. I, I think the focus really has to be on where the um, major organisations are, excuse me for saying this, but where's the money being spent? So much money in administration, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, you think about what we did with, with practically nothing, and this isn't a plea for money, because most of the times we don't need money to do what we do. I told you it's very, very simple. It's just a matter of sitting with your fellow man and woman and just having a yarn, listening. Opening your heart, opening your arms, embracing people. You know, my, my greatest teacher, I go back to my old grandmother, when we lived in the dirt floors and corrugated tin, we used to throw bread and fat, pull it out, throw salt on it, and that was your dinner. The reason I'm telling you that was, anyone that came to our place and never had a feed had the same feed, and Nan said, make sure they're fed. It's all about sharing with your people. Aboriginal people are the greatest sharers in the world. No one will convince me otherwise. And listening is, is essential in our, in our lives. And that's how Babana flourishes. To think, you know, this men's group, Babana, which, by the way, is a direct word for brother, which is what we all are, has been going for, what, 15, 16 years? And we don't get millions of dollars. But we're successful because we give our word and what we do. We listen to our fellow men. That's how we do suicide prevention. You know, I had two, two in my group commit suicide. And I've got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, one was a Pakistani gentleman, jumped off a building here in Camperdown, and another was a white school teacher in the Central Coast. Because our group is open to all men. We're brothers. So we decided to do something about it. It's about time we did, and we'll continue to do that. You know, when I did our first event up in uh, the Kerry Packer Room at Prince Alfred Hospital, I didn't even know there was a Kerry Packer Room. <laughs> But I was so blessed that this beautiful hospital shared that room with us because our brothers and sisters came down from Burke and when they came to us, they travelled over a thousand k's, buses. And I said, how come you came to us? And they said, Unc, they're not doing what you're doing in the bush, but our kids are taking their lives for all the reasons that would take me too long to tell you that some of it's pretty horrific. But it's, that's what's going on. So we've got to listen and see what more we can do. They support us and travel all that way. We must be doing something right, eh? Not rocket science. Could I, can I just make the general comment? When, when people get unwell, they withdraw from social networks. 
So a lot of the time, there's a sort of thing like, what should the person I'm well do? <laughs> That's distinct from what do the rest of us do? So for a lot of men, this, the issue about staying connected, I mean, historically, I think traditionally, men just don't stay connected in social networks as effectively as women have historically done. So one of the issues is, I think, the direct practical thing is for the networks of male friends and et cetera that you have, do you actually stay in contact with them when they stop being in contact with you? In the modern world with technology and everything else, I think one of the really big issues is we can stay in connection much more. And so I'd say the, the, as a community what we need to do, and as communities of men and men that you are communities with, is actually be parts of those communities, to actually actively be part of those communities, not take them for granted. And when people within that community are struggling or they start to withdraw, is actually the reaching out bit. Is actually bothering to be so. Sort of, you see, it's in the kind of are you okay kind of idea that's kind of out there, but in a much more active way all the time. Just being aware that we all have tough times, we all have difficult times, and when you do, you tend to withdraw because being in contact with people, other people is hard. So, in order to have those conversations, you also need the other people who are part of your networks to reach out to you during those times. And men have just not been historically. I wouldn't want to, oh, no, he's withdrawn, he stopped talking, I'll just leave him on his own. Which in a football club, they never let you do. You know, team can't succeed if you don't turn up. I had a great thing with the, um, an Adelaide basketball team at one stage. They had a great story about the guy at the three-point shoot. And they said, you know, what do they do when the three-point shooter is no longer being successful? They said, give him more of the ball, not less, right? We need him to function for the whole team to function. You know, instead of valued people who are actually struggling, as distinct from seeing seen as a problem. I think historically we've let people go and employment, we let people go and, you know, other things. Sporting teams have hired people under contract cannot afford to let them go. <laughs> so they actually do everything they can to assist their performance. It's a kind of interesting model for the rest of us, the extent to which we value or not people and we go out of our way to make sure, not just for those people we call family, not just for those people we are connected to by kin, but those people who are valuable members of the community in which we otherwise live. And I think historically men just haven't kind of done that as effectively as we could. We're going to go, are we going here? Um, can we go here first? But, oh, no, uh, handballing. Um, yeah. But before we do, I just wanted to note that, you know, we are talking about some very serious and sensitive things. And if it's triggering for anyone on the radio, we say call Lifeline on 13, 11, 14. I don't know if that's the right advice in this context, but. Um, if if you need some more advice, then I guess come and get some numbers or websites from us afterwards. If anyone in the room feels a bit triggered by that this discussion, we'll go over here. Thank you. My name's Deb. Last November, we lost my nephew to suicide, and this has been a really tough twelve months. My sister and I have done lots of uh, meetings and lots of places to go and get information. And what we've realised is that Kerry was given a lot of drugs. What he wasn't given was hope. And my sister and I are doing our darndest to make sure that in our local area we do something to give young people hope. There's not a lot around. Everything's centralised and it was too hard for him to access um, help. And when he did get help, he was given more drugs and sent home. We have fabulous elders in our area. Our uncles and aunties are just absolutely beautiful people. Unfortunately, we're losing a lot of our elders now to suicide. So what we'd like to do is to actually bring our elders and our young people together to connect them again, to give our young people a sense of country, to actually give them stories. Because I don't think our young people are being given hope. 
And that's really, really sad. We hear a lot of rhetoric about, oh, yes, this is going to be done and you can do that and there's this organisation and there's this and there's that. But when you actually talk to people, they have a lot of trouble in actually accessing help. We've lost a lot of people to suicide in our local area over the last 12 months because once you're actually in there, people tell you their stories. And it is incredibly sad to think that we're, using, we're losing smart, articulate people that are being given drugs but they're not being given hope. And we ask, are you okay? If they say no, it's like, well, you can go here and go there. What we need to do is say, I'm going to walk with you. I really want to help you. I want to be with you. So we need to have a, another level of help that people can actually, our uncles, our aunties, our brothers, our sisters, um, walk with these people. And we're talking a lot about our grandparents. Some of these kids come from really awful domestic situations and they don't have that. They might have um, family not living in the local area. If we actually had a facility in the local suburb where uncles and aunties could come and double up as those extended families and share stories and listen to the kids as well and actually almost teach those kids that it's not okay to feel this bad and there's people out there to help you and also how to ask the questions. Where do we actually start the dialogue? So we need more um, hope in our in our local society than we do um, just looking at mental health. We actually need to give them hope for future employment, for future um, outcomes. And I think that's what we're really lacking at the moment is that hope. And I'm going to do my darndest to make sure that we actually affect change in our local area. Um, we keep on thinking about what we can do and then we keep on getting sort of, you know, pushed down and pushed back and Everyone gives us the negatives of why we can't do it, but we haven't been dissuaded yet. So we just want to help people and we want to give people hope. So if you've got any suggestions, we will take them because people say, oh, we've got money to help you. And then when you tell them their plan, they go, oh, well, that's not really in our sphere. And you think, okay, so we'll just keep asking more people. But I think hope is important and connecting our elders and our young people is key to actually helping this next generation come through. We can't help my nephew, but we're going to help other people. Thanks. And can I get you to reflect on that a little bit, um, you know, about the strategies around connecting younger people with, with elders and, and what effect that could have on um, treatment? Well, I think the issues you're raising are true of all young people. If you look at the development of identity, of hope, of the future, I mean, the danger of mental health problems of the onset of adolescence is, you know, adolescents don't know what the future is. So the idea of success and how successful you are and remember, depends a lot on having access to different successful people who've coped in different ways. Personally, I have many children. Unfortunately, they have many aunts and uncles who are much better parents than me. And they see different role models, different ways of being in the world in relation to different things because we're temperamentally different in different ways. So this issue of a richness of a community in terms of development of psychological skills, of hope, of the future is very contextual. You know, it is tied up in the complexity of human relationships. 
So the issue of for communities that have really fallen apart or struggled or the issues of colonisation, the issues of disconnection, the issues of stolen generations run across all those sets of things. In, it, in communities that more generally, I mean, the wider issue in our wider communities, we don't have as many community-based activities as we did. So historically, things like churches, sporting groups, community groups themselves are themselves young people have less access to the formality of many of those things than they had. So there's a, there's a big challenge in the wider community for young people of an idea of how the future will be in a much more uncertain world and a much more disconnected world. And then within communities like Indigenous communities that have been more affected by those forces, the issues are really profound. Now, I don't think that means that people are unaware of that, but it does mean that the nature of community action to redo those things is a much more human thing. It's not something any in a sense, funded health service, welfare service, other service intrinsically does. They don't. So the issues of these sort of issues of community connectedness and how fundamental they are to young people to offering not just the idea of hope, but actually seeing people who share stories. I've been through that. I know how it works. And in fact, if I'm quite like you, what I say about how you might do that is actually more meaningful. People can identify that and they can see a practical way forward. There are issues that are really important, ones you alluded to, in the surrounding issues about access to things like education, employment, the sort of development things that Joel's had the opportunity through sport to go through to provide actually pathways in very practical ways that engender hope. So not hope as an abstract thing, but hope as a practical thing. You can see what actually happens is a human connectedness. It's just a, you know, it's a stories and it's communities actually having those stories and intact you know, in various ways and lots of communities, the wider Australian community and wider Western developed cultures struggle with this at the moment, intrinsically, the degree of connectedness in your place through these critical phases of development. So we've got a whole lot of issues going on about increasing rates of self-harm and suicidal behaviour in young women, increasing presentation to emergency departments across the world in the developed world, which probably reflect a breaking down of a whole lot of these kind of social connections at a critical developmental age. Now, if they're played out in some First Nation communities worldwide, those problems are like times three, you know, generally speaking, because of the degree of disconnect and intrinsically within a wider social thing that's going on, those communities themselves having had greater uh, disconnection between groups or having the sort of things that Marcus is describing of having had a great deal of transgenerational trauma and then other sets of issues. So the issues of rebuilding those things in a functional way is a really serious ongoing challenge. But the sort of thing you're talking about doing yourselves at a local level is the community level of things. So trying to get this right and different communities that we live in are different in different parts of Australia and in different parts of the world. Mark, was Babana born out of a similar sort of trauma? Uh, well, as I said earlier, Babana came about my work with parolees, um, but then listening to the parolees and the issues that they had and why they were going inside. Um, Look, ladies and gentlemen, this picture has, is like a jigsaw. There's so many pieces that we need to fit to make the picture make sense. You know, something that hasn't been said tonight that is key for the work that we do, and my wife sitting in the front row does, is mentoring. Um, Debbie works with so many young boys and girls, men and women, Indigenous people that don't have the opportunity for employment. And in a lot of cases think, well, the education, they haven't got the education to do it. They've done some time in the big house. Who's going to give me a go? We need to listen to those stories. And Debbie does that and has turned a lot of lives around. In particular, and I'm going to say this because I've got the opportunity to do so, because I'm going to tell you the professor can speak. Um, you're a very good speaker, my brother, and far more educated than me. 
So I'm hoping some of the drivel that I'm giving out makes a little <laughs> bit of sense. Uh, but the gentleman sitting next to Debbie, uh, Mark Bandy, through a core hotels and the work that he does and helps uh, Debbie do, has placed so many of our people into jobs where they're getting off welfare and they're getting their self-esteem back. See, there's another piece of the jigsaw. Mentoring, self-esteem, think about it. It's a huge jigsaw, isn't it? These are all just pieces of that puzzle. To give our people an opportunity into employment, and this gentleman here, he's going to hate me for doing this, has shone the light in that direction. He's doing it. I've, I've got a cousin, I've got to tell you, her father is a champion boxer in this country, Glenn Collis. He now works at the rehab centre at Wyoming, who I have very strong links with, the Glen. I do a lot of work with the Glen. I'm proud of those boys. They danced for us on the island the other day. Culture has got them back in the picture. Not the drugs, not the gold jewellery, not the Nike shoes, dancing, painting up and dancing and showing their people, I'm proud of who I am. And it's culture. There's another piece of the jigsaw. Let's make that picture today. But, you know, all those things add up. If, if we don't listen to our people, mentor our people, I've heard some of the conversations that Debbie's uh, been a party to, um, and so many that are affected by different substances, but then clean their life up. They were on the island with us last week and they swore to her two days ago, they weren't going. You're only taking a box on me. I've got to tell you, they were there and they danced with the Glen, with the Glen boys, their brothers. That makes sense to me because it's changing lives. There's a story that they need to tell. You know, those boys lead the march for me every year in Anzac Day. You know, we had Julie Bishop and the... The, the governor and Clover Moore, they all come. God bless them, on it. But what, what makes me so proud is those Aboriginal men leading the march, right up the front of the march. Because you know what we're doing, ladies and gentlemen? We're putting them back in the picture. We're giving them purpose. And so, so proud of you. You know, and we got off that boat, and my auntie down here who just told the story was with me last week. So I know your story. I feel your pain. I really do. I know the story. Um, we got on the wharf down there at uh, Eastern Pontoon. I need to tell you this. This is worth more than money. You, know, you talk millions of dollars and God knows what. We can do what we do with no money. Those boys from the Glen, strong men, done some heavy time, circled me and said three cheers for Mark Spinks. I cried. You can't pay for that, can you? And that was me healing and them healing me. Think about it. It's not rocket science, as I've said before. We've got time for one more question. I don't know. Oh. <clears throat> Hello. Uh, my name's Grant Kyle, uh, Berry Gubba Warrior from the Berry Nation in North Queensland, uh, the area now known as Ellie Beach with Sundays. And, um, well, I just want to say thank you so much for a deadly evening. And, um, you know, um, I just want to address you, Joel, Brother Joel. Um, thank you so much, brother. That was really, really powerful, hey, and uh, you know how to talk. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's great that our people, especially young ones, have you doing that for them. Um, you had me tearing up as soon as you mentioned grandmother, hey. You know, I was thinking about my uh, my beautiful nana, Erica, hey, and uh, she was the one always there for me. And, uh, you know, um, my, my big mental health thing and uh, my shame and my suicide attempts and my worthlessness come about. I just want to thank you for, for being so brave and, and raw and open with us and honest tonight, brother. My, my, my stuff is uh, being a gay Aboriginal and, uh, 
you know, hasn't been spoken about much tonight, but, uh, you know, our, our kids and certainly, you know, um, in, in time before, uh, you know, kill themselves over this stuff and, uh, you know, our own people tell, tell us that we are worthless and, uh, you know, for me personally, it was you're not a real man, you know, and I had to fight all that and, uh, you know, every time I was called Queenie and Cat and got bashed, you know, Nana Erica was there, come on, boy, it's all right. You know you loved, hey, you know you loved and you know they're stupid, hey. She always said to me, go Sydney, boy, go Sydney, hey, and I came Sydney and uh, it was here where I met, uh, you know, Rainbow Elders, hey, beautiful Camilla Roy man who took me under his wing and mentored me and, uh, you know, and some beautiful uh, Gadigal women and, uh, you know, and they showed me, you know, you can do this without drinking and drugging and fucking your life, excuse me, but, you know, mucking your life up and, and you know, being so sad, boy, hey, and, you know, they took me under the, their wing and they just listened. Oh, no, I listened to them and, um, you know, you touched on something really beautiful tonight uh, that, you know, um, that we still have to fight, you know. We, we can look after our own, hey. We really can and that's the truth and... Uh, Listen, just thank you for a beautiful story there, brother. You stay black and you stay strong, hey, and stay deadly. And uh, thank you, everyone, hey. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.